I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Marion Grant. She is a doctor of nursing practice and works with CTEC, overseeing policy and professional engagement, fighting to enhance palliative care for the seriously ill. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. You doing okay today? I'm doing very well today. Good. It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm just thrilled to be just working with CTAC and trying to further education about anything when it comes to end of life. And so before we talk about the role of CTAC, I'm interested in knowing how you became a palliative care nurse practitioner and, and what attracted you to palliative care. So it's, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll shorten it. Although I have to start by blaming Bill Clinton. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a lot of people blame him for something. <laughs> so I was, I was an advertising executive for Procter & Gamble working on the CoverGirl and Max Factor business. And I was... What? Yes, yes. In a previous life. Uh, and I was coming back from a business trip when I, in a cab, I heard him do his first State of the Union address where he talked about the importance of volunteering. And I thought, you know, the man is right. I should volunteer. So I, I kind of haphazardly ended up volunteering um, for an AIDS hospice. In Baltimore. Now, this was 1991. Everyone with AIDS pretty much died back then. Mm. I didn't know anything about HIV or AIDS. I didn't know anything about hospice. It was really kind of weird how I ended up there. But it was so great that when my company went through some downsizing, I thought I need a backup plan. And I, I just had met such wonderful nurses and nurse practitioners that I thought, okay, that's my backup plan. But then I didn't get downsized. <laughs> But then I loved the backup plan. So my oh, dad wow. my dad passed away and I decided I was going to become a nurse. So so I went to nursing school and then I got seduced by what we call acute care. I worked in the ER, then I worked in the ICU, and that was really exciting. And it, until I started to realize, oh, no, I mean, it's great to save people when either they can be saved or they want to be saved. But that isn't everybody. And we were trying to save everybody. And I, because I'd had this hospice experience for like 10 years, I thought, oh, maybe there's a way I can do both. And that was palliative care, which is kind of the principles of hospice, you know, quality of life, support for the patient and the family, symptom management, communication, uh, all of those things. And I could do it in the hospital as a palliative care nurse practitioner. So I've only ever practiced as an NP in palliative care. Wow. So you went from nursing school to nursing practitioner school. Is that what it's called? <laughs> well, yes, I, I, I got my bachelor's and then my master's um, in and, and became a nurse practitioner. Yeah. Oh, wow. And how long have you been in palliative care? Uh, since 2005. So it's 12 years now. Wow. Yeah. That is a total industry change. It is. And I like to joke that, you know, of course, many other cosmetics advertising executives were leaving to go into palliative care, but <laughs> that's not true. That's I know. <laughs> but it's a great answer, though. So, you know, a lot of people are hearing CTAC. They're, they're, you know, you guys are doing so 
much uh, good works. Uh, but what is CTAC? And let's sort of help the community understand, sure. you know, what does it encompass? So CTAC is the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. And it was founded probably about seven years ago by two people who had personal experiences with family where they got, you know, years typical care, which for somebody with advanced illness, which is, you know, the last months, the last year or two of life, is not very coordinated, certainly not good about, you know, support for the patient and the family. And they were so frustrated that they were here in Washington and they said, hey, let's start an organization. And they started this coalition which now has grown to be about 140 members. And we have a very broad membership um, in that. And that's kind of what's unique about CTEC. So we have members who are advocacy groups like uh, American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, uh, AARP. We have large health systems. So uh, Gunderson, um, Kaiser, you know, really terrific organizations. And then we have payers. Aetna and Cigna and, you know, folks who are on the, mon on the money side of healthcare, as well as um, provider groups, you know, so uh, physician groups, nurse nursing groups, things like that. And those are all the different components that are involved with care for people with advanced illness. So you're telling me that two people had a personal experience <laughs> and are now, and now seven years later, has these huge organizations backing yeah. them and supporting them and really changing how we look at illness. Yeah. Now they weren't two, just any people. So Bill Novelli is kind of one of the founders of social marketing and he had been the CEO of AARP for a number of years. And Tom Katsampas was a very well-known um, policy person and lobbyist here in Washington. So they, they weren't exactly, you know, your <laughs> average Americans, but but this was new for both of them. They, neither of them had a lot of experience in this area. And now I would say they're highly experienced in this area. Well, sure. That's amazing. So what, what is the mission behind CTAC? You know, can I read you, Kim? Can I yes, read you the mission? absolutely. Because it is not only CTAC's mission, it is my mission. Oh, awesome. So it is that all Americans with advanced illness, especially the sickest and most vulnerable, receive comprehensive, high-quality person and family-centered care that is consistent with their goals and values and honors their dignity. That's a heck of a mission. It's a heck of a mission and it's a tall order, but I, I think that that is the right, that is the right one. And, and we, we work in many different ways, um, you know, to advance that mission. Oh, wow. Um, that's exciting to hear that an organization um, is shooting for the stars because, I mean, that is a, a big big mission. But you know what? You guys are making huge leaps every day. And, yeah. and I've, I've been watching you and, and how you guys are growing. <laughs> and um, it's really exciting. And I, I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, you're here with us today. So let's, let's elaborate on CTEC's campaign to transform advanced care. I mean, what are the priorities of this campaign? So it, it, that's a really great question. That's, this is a new kind of focus for us. And we've always been focused on the key aspects of care for advanced illness. So, you know, patient-centered, um, the policy aspects, the clinical aspects, but the campaign is really an opportunity for us to focus on those areas and add things like caregivers. So we've always been aware of the importance of family caregivers, but now this is a strategic uh, area for us. And we are definitely focusing on the impact on them because we know that most people with advanced illness 
are part of a family unit and they have some loved one or some neighbor or whoever who's trying to help them manage that illness. The other thing that we've added to our focus is cost. And there's a lot of talk. So we're headquartered here in Washington. There's a lot of talk, obviously, about healthcare cost in Washington. But we know that the cost to individuals and their families with advanced illness is is really high. And it's too high for many families. You know, this is one of the leading causes of medical bankruptcy in the country. And, you know, if you have a loved one with, with dementia or Alzheimer's, you're out of pocket over a, a you know, five, 10 year period can be like $50,000. So, I mean, it, it's crazy, you know, so. What's interesting is your, your title, Senior Policy Advisor for CTAC. I mean, what, what is that? I, I think the senior refers to my age more than my experience. <laughs> I love but, it. <laughs> but I, so, so CTAC has a very small staff, and then it employs a number of us as consultants, and it has two senior policy consultants, one of whom is a wonderful lobbyist named Andrew McPherson, and I handle the regulatory uh, focus for CTAC. So I, I advise on those things. So what is, what is that like? So, um, you know, my role here at CTAC is that I'm available for, I present, uh, I was last week in California presenting at a symposium there. I will be presenting in Michigan on Friday. Um, so I will talk to any group at any time about this topic. So I leave that as an open invitation to you and to your listeners. Absolutely. I, I also monitor regulation. So it must be when you, you t- say Washington and policy, everybody thinks about Congress, which which is, of course, a big part of what happens. And laws or legislation is important. But a lot of times the regulations, which is how we make laws actually real things in the real world, that they have to be turned in reg- into regulations, is a very important place to add influence and to make sure that the, you know, the, the government is moving in the right direction. So although Andrew handles our lobbying and we have a number of bills that we are very strongly supporting and we were involved actually in drafting those bills and we're working very hard to get them, you know, co-sponsors and hopefully to get them voted on. But then at the same time, I monitor the regulatory space. So, you know, a few times a year, the government publishes proposed regulations for how are we going to pay providers? What kind of services are we going to provide in the hospital? What kind of things should hospice provide? What kind of things should be in long-term care facilities? And that is an opportunity to, first of all, make sure that nothing in those regs is is wrong for our patient population. But at the same time, it's a chance to comment on, hey, this is a good idea, but have you considered that? Or no, I don't think this is going to work, but this might work instead. And the government you know, has to put these things out for comment. And, and I know because they when they publish the final regulations, they usually acknowledge the comments. So I was just going through some from the last few weeks and they acknowledge the comments that CTAC made, which is which is great. Now, did that change the regulation? No, but it's it's part of a dialogue that goes on between the public and, and people who are industry experts and the government. Well, what I love about you is that you have your feet in two different worlds. You know, you're still a, a a practicing clinician and you, and that's what I love is that you are dealing, you know, whether it's part-time or three quarters of your time, really with actual acute settings with actual parent, I mean, patients and families and, um, and, and then you can come back and really 
kind of speak from your own experience of what you're seeing on a daily basis. And I, that's what I think is so authentic about CTAC employing or consulting with you because you can see things differently than, than anybody else because you do have those feet in different worlds. But, but why do you think it's important for you to continue to practice as well as negotiate these regulatory standards and policies um, to help clinicians? Because, you know, hospice world, it's all about those regulatory things that make us further, gets us further away from really taking care of the patients. And, and so it's confusing. So help me understand how you balance your life in these two different worlds. It's a great question. I, I worked very hard to become a nurse and a nurse practitioner, and I really liked seeing patients. And then I ended up doing a health policy fellowship as part of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation here in Washington. And then I had this opportunity to stay in Washington and work on policy. But I didn't want to give up seeing patients. And very fortunately, the hospital where I work, the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, was willing to be flexible and said, hey, if you could cover for some of our folks, you know, a few times a month, you know, maybe every now and then for a few days because of somebody's on vacation. And I said, that would be great. And I have to tell you, Kim, it's really, I think it's, it's makes me better at both things. So when I'm in the hospital, and I run into issues, you know, I'm trying to persuade a patient that maybe going home with home hospice would be good. And they're, they're telling me, but, you know, I still have chemo. I, I don't want to give that up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's the problem with the hospice benefit right. currently. But then I'm back in Washington and I hear people talking about, well, we need to make providers do this. And we need to make providers do that. And the electronic health record. And I'm like, um, as somebody who charts in that electronic health record, let me tell you, that is not as easy as you think it is. And, and you think you can just wave a magic wand and all providers will have these conversations. Well, that, that does not how it works clinically. So it, it really is a good check in both directions. It doesn't let me get too crazy on the policy side. And it reminds me when I'm with patients and families why the policy work and why what CTAC is doing is so very important. So it really re-energizes me in both directions. So you have a passion for policy. I, I do. I mean... You know, it's funny. I have to say for me, you know, I had this weird background in marketing. What was I going to do with that? Well, when I went into nursing and I started to do patient education, I realized, oh, wait a minute, that is marketing, right? Because I'm trying to persuade people to do helpful behaviors. But now that I'm in the policy world, it's perfect because that's all about advocacy. Well, that's marketing, right? So I know how to do that. I'm very comfortable with that. And then my clinical experience, you know, really adds to it. So Finally, after having many different roles and over a long numbers of years, I'm, I'm finally in the perfect spot. This is where I think I'm meant to be. Well, I'm just happy that as a clinical person, you like marketing because that, <laughs> that sometimes is a very fine line for clinicians, um, that marketing piece and, and selling certain things and actually not being really hooked to that delivery piece. And yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. So whenever I find a nurse that actually can market, not because they're good at marketing, but they're just passionate about what they do. That's marketing. It is. And, and I, that's what I tell my colleagues all the time when they roll their eyes and say, oh, it's advertising that's bad. I say, no, wait a minute. When you try to talk to somebody about quitting smoking, you're not neutral, right? Like you care 
that you persuade them to change their behavior. Well, that is what good social marketing at least is. It's trying to change behavior for, for the either the individual or common good. So that's a great explanation. So can we discuss your work on like submitting regulatory comments to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services? I mean, what has CTEC advocated in this regard? I mean, what is that process like? Well, I tell you that this is not the, the um, slogging through those regulations is not the most fun part of the job. They are hundreds of pages long. They are highly technical and they're, they're up for public comment. So if anyone wants to Google, you know, uh, the proposed rule for MACRA, M-A-C-R-A, they will get the 800 or 2300 pages. I don't know how long it was. So first I go through them, I, I search for keywords. I see, is, is palliative care included? Is advanced illness mentioned? Is serious illness mentioned? Is hospice mentioned? Is advanced care planning, you know, the process to, to make your wishes known in advance? And, and then I go to, you know, proposed quality measures if they're included. And I look at them and I say, huh, how does this affect the patient population that CTAC is focused on, which is people with advanced illness. Is this going to be helpful or not helpful to them? And what are they asking for comment on? And sometimes lately, uh, a number of the regulations have asked for comment on, should we find a way to work social risk factors into how we adjust payment? Because now payment is moving towards paying for value as opposed to paying just for volume. And we think that's a great idea. So every time that that they ask, what do you think? We always comment consistently, yes, that's important. And we also are big believers in advanced care planning. Respecting choices is one of the parts of CTEC. Great organization. Great organization. Yeah, great system. And so we often will add those to comments and say, you know, you have some important patient and, you know, activities in here for providers to do, but we really could boost either the importance of advanced care planning, or you should add advanced care planning, or you should make sure that if people have an advanced care plan, that it matches the actual treatment that they get. So, I mean, these are things that we know that Medicare isn't going to just change overnight, but we also work because we're a, a coalition, we work very collaboratively with our members and with other organizations so that all of our comments are pretty consistent And when you start hearing from five or six big organizations, you know, representing many other organizations, all saying the same thing, I I have to believe that 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 is important advocacy and that CMS is is acknowledging that and trying to figure out, okay, how would we make it? Sometimes people see Medicare as the biggest, greatest thing ever, and other people see it as, oh, it's... It's so complicated, especially with the regulatory stuff. But, I mean, you believe there are pros and cons when it comes to the healthcare system that we're in. And I just was, what are those pros and cons? What are your thoughts about that? Because, and I'm talking maybe, you know, 30,000 degree. I know that there's a lot of complications down on the dailiness, but what what are the pros and cons that we're, we're moving toward? We have a terrific rescue care system in this country. And if you want to be rescued, and believe me, if somebody told me tomorrow that I had a a certain cancer that was curable, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of palliative care and hospice, but that would not be my first stop, right? Right. Right. So we have a great rescue system. But the problem is that that we don't we don't ask people early enough in a serious illness or in in a life threatening illness. Okay, so if we can't save you, how much are you willing to go through? You know, and what kind of quality of life is important to you? We just never ask those questions. So if, if you have a problem at home, you have a shortness of breath or you have pain or you're whatever, 
and you and you call your doctor or you call your nurse practitioner, the recording is going to tell you to hang up and call 911, right? So you end up in the ER. Well, if you have an advanced illness, you're pretty sick. You're going to get admitted, right? And then we're going to throw everything at you because we don't ask in the hospital these questions either, unless you call somebody like me or my team who comes and asks this question. And they don't typically call us on the first day of the hospitalization, right? They call us two weeks into it or three months into it, you know? Do you think it's just because that's what how they're trained is to deal with symptoms? It's And I, I mean, I... I know on my side and, and possibly your side, you, I, I do believe clinicians are trying to do the right thing. But but at times when you're in this emergency setting, it is about what are the symptoms and treating that and not the whole patient. And there's really fragmented communication. Oh, my gosh. Still. Well, and it isn't, you know, honestly, Kim, it isn't even about the symptoms. Because I'm, I'm usually seeing patients in the ICU because in addition to being a palliative care nurse practitioner, I am an acute care nurse practitioner. So I was trained to care for people in the ICU. And there we're, we're all about trying to save people who in many cases aren't going to make it. And so we, we don't treat symptoms because that's a lower priority. You know, if you have to save somebody's life or they're a little bit uncomfortable, you're going to do everything. If their blood pressure is, is low, you're not going to give them the medicine to help pain that might lower their blood pressure, right? So it's kind of counterintuitive. And unless you've had a conversation with that patient or that family to say, all right, if we have to make tough choices, which way should we go? You know, in the absence of that direction, we just assume, well, they'd want to be safe, so we won't treat the pain or we won't treat the nausea. And then in terms of talking and communication, you know, people who have advanced illness usually have more than one advanced illness. I never see patients who have just one, right? So you have a you have a lung doctor, you have a kidney doctor, you have a heart doctor, you have a cancer doctor, and everybody's you know like looking at their piece of the person and managing their piece. And I mean, the family in the hospital is so confused, right? Because all these people keep coming in and they're all wearing white coats. They don't explain who they are, and they say this is better. Well, they mean their little like aspect of kidney function, and meanwhile the cancer is like spreading like wildfire, but no one. They don't have, you know, no one sits down and says, okay, here's the big picture. So that's why palliative care is so terrific, at least in the hospital. And I think it's going to be terrific in the community as well, because I'm the one who comes in and says, okay, what's the big picture? Let's look at it all together. And then what do you as the person want? And if they tell me they want every last thing and to be saved, then that's what we're going to do, because that's our system, right? But if right. they say, oh, you know, this now is not what I wanted, or I thought dialysis would be okay, but I hate it. Well, then I'm there to say, you know, you, you can stop or we can, we can do something else, you know, and give them permission to consider alternatives. Which if they haven't had conversations, they don't know, they 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 don't know. Um, And, you know, this, this whole sort of year has been a really interesting year for me, because Maybe it's because I'm more aware of looking for things about death and dying, but I see this this really good explosion. The New York Times, Huffington yeah. Post. Yep. I mean this this conversation, and B.J. Miller calls it a drumbeat, mm-hmm. uh, a, a cadence that is starting to happen. Uh, and I believe, I mean, just by hearing you, you feel that the caregivers play a very large part of that drumbeat. They do. So I, I, you're totally right, Kim. So, you know, with my marketing background, I have been monitoring media in this space, you know, since I, for 12 years now. 
And there, I used to be once or twice a year, there'd be an article. And I don't know if it's the aging of the baby boomers who are journalists or if it's the aging of the baby boomers who are, you know, starting to demand some of these issues be addressed. But there is I'm just sitting with one of my colleagues and every day he summarizes from from the, uh, you know, the public press, the conversation. And there are five or six very specific articles or postings about end of life, serious illness, palliative care, hospice. So I'm I'm very hopeful. I'm I'm hoping that the baby boomers, you know, these are the people who help change how we give birth in this country, right? Because they they said, "What do you mean my my partner isn't going to be in the room?" Or what what do you mean I I have to be medicated or or that I can't, you know, be be at home, right? And I'm hoping that the baby boomers will start to see how, you know, certainly how their parents are facing the last months and years of their lives and say, whoa, this is not what we want, you know, and we want we want better care. And it it's out there. We know how to do it. It's now it's a question of helping the whole health system, because if it's down to just having specialists like me and my palliative care and hospice colleagues do it, well, there aren't enough of us, you know, so we have to train everybody in, in how to be better at this. Well, and in, in going, you know, absolutely. But what scares me is that palliative care is is not really reimbursed. I mean, it's so, I mean, that's the thing. Oh, that. Yeah. I mean, and, and not that, I mean, everything we're, we're inter- I'm just interested in making a living. I mean, and so are mm-hmm. you and, yeah. and you're, yeah. you're giving a service and, but gosh, I mean, this whole hospice policy, um, that really hasn't been changed in about 30 years. It hasn't evolved because of the population that we're serving has changed. And, and you have this palliative care piece that is, is sort of nowhere to be seen and is so such a second thought where it should be the very first thing. If someone comes in with an advanced care plan or um, a serious illness in the ER, that is a palliative care consult every single time right in the ER to prevent admissions or to ask those questions that, that are so important because when you have a serious illness, it's not a matter of, it's a matter of quality, but it's also what matters most. And I can't project that on a patient. Only they know. Right. And I would have to say I am very encouraged. Now, of course, I'm oh, an good. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone into palliative care. But right. I, I, I see a number of, pos- of positive things. So first of all, the old fee-for-service payment system does not work for palliative care, right? Because first of all, I, as a nurse practitioner, can bill for my time. So I can bill for doing symptom management, but there is no code for doing spiritual counseling for the family, right? So that's a problem. Also, I work on a team where nurses can't bill and chaplains can't bill. And so right now my hospital is having to pay all the members of that team kind of out of their pockets. And, and that's not a good situation. So the shift in healthcare to paying for value is going to help us in, in, in palliative care and, and even in hospice. And so, you know, that, that is starting to say, we are developing payment models, and CTAC actually developed and submitted the first of the palliative care payment models to the new structure at, at Medicare that's going to be reviewing them. And that would be payment for a, a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary team providing care at home to the patient and the family. It's kind of like hospice. Now, the, on the hospice side, I would agree 
it had you know the benefit hasn't been changed but but even medicare knows that that's a problem so when i was a fellow in 2015 i had the privilege of working for a little while at the center for medicare and medicaid innovation cmmi on their medicare care choices model which is where they said okay we know a big problem with hospice is that right now the way the benefit is structured people have to give up disease-modifying treatment. And again, when it was developed in the early 1980s, there weren't options, but now there are. So this is a model that lets patients with only a few narrowly defined illnesses get both hospice, and it's not full hospice, it's a more hospice light, but at least some hospice, and they can continue that treatment. And, you know, Medicare can't change anything without data. So this is a, a national demonstration project, 142 hospices participating, thousands of patients, and it's going to take another few years to read those results. But we know that from the private market, so Aetna has had a similar concurrent care model since, you know, 10 years now, and they show consistent benefits to the patients and families. People get hospice sooner, they get hospice for longer, they are not in the ER and the ICU, they live either as much or longer, and it saves everybody money. So I, I thank God it does, because if it didn't, we would be really stuck. So I think it's just a matter of time before we have enough data that we can comfortably hold our hands and jump off that cliff and say, yes, people can get both. Well, you know, working in hospice, it was always that fine line uh, when it came to, hey, don't give palliative care all these disciplines because now you're going to distract from really hospice care. And, and, and it, there's this intermingling of of let palliative care still be out here, led by uh, an MP. But what are the benefits to maintain the hospice benefit, but also add to the palliative care? They're no, not comp- they're not competing. No, they're not. They're not. And I mean, my my clinical experience, and certainly I think the evidence would c- confirm this, is that people who get palliative care get hospice sooner and for longer. So it's it's a gateway to hospice, right? And, and I think some of the lines ultimately are going to get very blurry because what is going to be the difference between home-based palliative care and home-based hospice if you can all, also have concurrent care? It, it's going to start. And in fact, many of the very uh, progressive hospices in the country are already offering palliative care. I, I worked for one in, in Maryland that had uh, you know, an open access uh, program. We had bridge programs. We would meet people wherever they were because we knew once we got them to be part of this. And once the team would get to know them and their families and they would see the benefit, most people start to say, why would I go back to the hospital? That's crazy, you know? We even have ICER docs starting to call. You know, they don't, in the old days where you made money off of every admission and the longer they stayed, the more money you made, that that wasn't gonna discourage people from admitting patients. But now if it's a readmission, I have P- I get called down to the ER. That's awesome. Because the, the physician team says, look, she, 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 we, they discharged her a week ago. Can you do something so she doesn't have to come back into the hospital? And the patient doesn't want to be back in the hospital either. So it's it's just finally aligning the, the reward structure, the financial structure, the administrative structure, you know, to, to try to get to where we were. We know what the vision is. It's just getting from here to there. And it's going to be a bumpy road for both palliative care and hospice for probably a while, you know, but I think eventually we'll get there. Well, I hope so, because I think, 
I really do. I I have always said in the past eight years that I believe palliative care is going to save hospice. And mm. the philosophy of why James Sicily created the modern hospice, you know, but I think palliative care is the bridge. Um, and it's getting those patients upstream and allowing them to understand. And that's the problem with palliative care. You're getting them way too late right now. Right. Right. And, and, but we're making strides and I, I get that, but I'm impatient. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want, I want it to happen, you know, and, and at least give people the choice. Um, but we use words like palliative and hospice that hospice now is equals death and palliative is like, what is palliative? And it's comes, I know for, it, you, you have to explain it's, it's, so much before you even talk about really what, it, what we do. Well, I, I joke about that. So I also have a doctorate in nursing. So I, I'm like, am, okay, I, I have to, first of all, I have to explain why I'm in the room. So what is palliative care? Then I have to explain that I'm a nurse practitioner. Then I have to explain that I'm Dr. Grant. It's too much explaining. So I agree. And that all happens, what, in 20 minutes, right? Never. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Right, right. But, you know, I, I, the other thing to, that I think that we have to recognize, I mean, the palliative care and hospice working synergistically for somebody with advanced illness makes perfect sense. But palliative care for somebody who might actually be cured who might never need hospice is also an option. And I, 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 I think you saw on the, on the tape uh, that, that you looked at, I, I tell the story of a good friend of mine who oh, I remember, was diagnosed yes. with this aggressive form of lymphoma after having twins in her forties. I did not think hospice was the right next step. No one did. Right. She went and got very aggressive treatment. It was really stressful, not only emotionally, but physically I, you know, she, she was in a place that had palliative care and they helped. And she just emailed me the other day. She just had her seventh anniversary cancer free. So she's cured as far as we're concerned. If you get five years out, you're cured. And she consistently says that she would say that palliative care was part of the reason why she's cured. So, I mean, that, that's amazing, right? So, so if we can have it for people at any point in an illness and then certainly have it coordinated with hospice for people in the last months or year or two of life, that would be ideal. I totally agree. What's exciting for CTAC is that you guys are getting ready to start this fourth national summit this <laughs> November. And, and you're going to be talking about things that we talked about today. Um, so tell me a little bit about what is going on, what's the focus of the summit this year, uh, and tell me the dates so we can really encourage people. Can anybody come? Anyone can come. Now, they have to pay because, I mean, you know, food is involved and, and sure. facility. And, and again, because we're not in a lucrative field, we, we have to charge for that. Um, it is going to be the week after Thanksgiving, um, the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, after Thanksgiving, it's going to be here in Washington at the Capitol Hilton on 16th Street. If you are interested, all you have to do is go to the SeaTac website, which is the SeaTac, which is the word the and then ctac.org, and click on the um, summit link. And I have to say, the summit is kind of known in the industry as the place to to be and to be seen. This is where, unlike some of the other meetings that take place, and I go to all of them. This is where you have CEOs of health systems. We, the the co-chairs of the summit are Bill Frist, you know, the former majority leader of the Senate. Wow. That, that guy, that guy. <laughs> yeah. And Tom Daschle, who's also a former Senate majority leader, who are both still very engaged in healthcare. Um, we have speakers from AARP. We have speakers from uh, Gallup. 
we really have big names. And not only are those big name speakers, there are big names at the conference. And it is set up both for there to be presentations and breakout sessions, but a lot of time for networking. So it, it's really a great opportunity to kind of be in a room with several hundred of the decision makers and, and you know, the, the people who are really um, making important steps in this field. So well, I would, I would write, it's, it's, it, the member discount is, there is a member discount. So if you would love to become a CTAC member, we'd be happy to talk with you about that. And you can get that information on the, uh, on the website. And my email is mgrant at the ctac.org. And I would be happy to field any questions people might have. And I will send you to the right person here at CTAC. Oh, great. So, yeah. Well, I have to say, you know, that you have a couple of friends of mine, um, showing up at your conference, which um, they've, they're so remarkable individuals. They have nothing to do with healthcare, nothing to do with policy. And they, they were taking care of uh, Tim's mom and put her in an RV and traveled the United States. No, and they had just had a book out called driving Miss Norma and their story about what they went through even challenges of trying to give uh, their mom this year of living and saying yes to life. So they're attending this conference as well. They are, and then we, they are going to be presenting. And, you know, we were big Miss Norma fans way back when, because hers was exactly the kind of story we're trying to make at least possible for other people. Now, maybe not everyone with serious illness is going to climb into an RV and go for a year adventure. But, but if you would like to, why couldn't you, you know, right. and, and, and that was important to her and her family and her providers made that happen. That should happen for everybody with serious illness, even if it means sitting on your porch or going home being with your dog, whatever, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And that's what, that's what I love about the summit is that you have personal stories, you have people from Congress and have these impact uh, can impact where healthcare is going. And, and then you just combine it with just CEOs of organizations or hospices. Um, and that's, I really love your mission. I love what you guys are doing. I'm so proud to be able to support this uh, summit and get people's interest to come because this is where things happen. And, you know, please come and join the conversation. This is a coalition. So we want People, we, we, we provide leadership, but we, we want, we're in constant dialogue with our members. So we, if you have a point of view, if you want to be part of this, come join us, come to the summit and join at least that conversation because, you know, we have um, a whole faith-based effort and I haven't talked about that because it's kind of not directly tied to policy, but we recognize that, you know, communities are probably the best places to figure out what are the resources that are needed? And need, different communities need different sets of resources. So um, we work with faith leaders in a number of, of communities around the country to promote things like advanced care planning among their congregations and provide information about hospice and palliative care and help people with caregiving burden and you know coordinating efforts. So it's it's that they, they will be at the summit as well. Well, I think what you guys are doing uh, is remarkable. I support your efforts. I I hope to see you guys in November if it's uh, made possible for me to be there. And I just applaud you and your passion, but also everyone at this wonderful organization that is doing small, big, anything to make having a, an advanced illness 
more about quality, more about getting the questions answered about what's what matters most to you and providing that care with inclusion um, with the patients and families. So I, I just salute you guys. Well, couldn't do it without help from people like you, Kim. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to possibly seeing you and good luck with this summit. And it's like, like I said, this is a drumbeat. It takes everyone. So I encourage everyone to go to CTAC's uh, website, check out the summit, um, send Marion questions if you have questions. And it, like, like we in this uh, death and dying industry and this death and dying conversation, it takes the community to ask questions and that's where awareness starts. And that's where we can start advocating for what's most important for individuals facing serious illness in today's healthcare system. Well, and look, you're a wonderful example of somebody who had a very different background, but decided what the heck, I want to do something about this. So here we all are. (laughs) Yes, everyone has a story for sure. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.